What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the planet today. Today is Friday, April 8th, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here once again with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. Nick, what's going on? Matt, hey, not too much. It is a rainy, sad, dreary, false spring day. I'm going to pick up the pace on this day, and I'm just going to get into a completely different mood, and we're going to have a great show. <laughs> You're going to bring the energy that the sun is not providing right now. Yes, exactly <laughs> right. Exactly right. So quick scheduling note before we get into things, a lot of big renewable energy stories came out this week. We're going to be covering those next week. And also the IPCC report, the latest section came out this week. Giselle and I are going to dive into that either later this month or early next month. So that's what's coming up on the pipeline soon. And with that, let's get into the show. Welcome to the planet today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. All right, let's get into our quick hits for the week. So our first one is a great story from World Animal News, where Lauren Lewis writes, heartwarming news as a critically endangered rhino is born at the Sumatran Rhino Sanctuary in Indonesia. The sanctuary is located within Wei Kambas National Park in the Lampung province. And on Thursday, March 24th, a Sumatran rhino named Rosa gave birth to a baby she had been carrying since December 2020. <whistles> We're talking about a 16-month pregnancy here. So respect to all the moms out there, but especially the rhino moms. <laughs> that is insane. And regular human moms think they have it bad. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Which they do. <laughs> yeah. The number of rhinos in the reserve is now up to eight. So every birth like this one really matters. Yeah. And the birth was overseen by a team of veterinarians to make sure that there were no complications. And luckily, so far, so good. Sumatran rhinos are critically endangered, mainly due to habitat loss and poaching, which is another tragic story of human-caused issues for wildlife. Yeah. And along with Sumatran rhinos in reserves, there are believed to be less than 80 individuals left in the wild. They live in the Indonesian islands of Sumatra and Borneo. And those populations are pretty isolated because they are on islands. So CT Nurbaya, the Minister of Environment and Forestry, said that he appreciates the steps taken to maintain and sustainably manage biodiversity for national and global interests both now and in the future. Yeah, this is this is an awesome story. I mean, only 80 individuals left. Like, they got to get yeah. reproducing. I don't know what we have to do if we have to make some, like, rhino show where we just get rhinos going. I'm just kidding. That's, I'm, I'm not going to get into that. That's actually something that has happened with pandas. Really? Pandas get out of here. Yeah, they're super lazy. So um, Bleep Hub uh, was, like, asking people to basically dress up as pandas and make amateur home videos to get the pandas going get out of here are you serious yeah dude i'm dead serious it was one wow. of the more wild wildlife conservation stories I've and ever now read. i and now i want to know if that actually worked 
to get to get the panda population reinvigorated. It probably just got the furry population invigorated, but who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so on a more serious note, yeah, this is this is a really good story. I mean, we've heard of all different types of rhinos that are all either endangered or critically endangered or in the process of going extinct. Um, there was, I believe, the northern white rhino last year that the last male passed away. So every rhino story, you know, you got to take it with a grain of salt because this is a win. But in the grand scheme of things, it's just it's tough to combat their population decline. Most of that is, you know, habitat loss is tough to combat because with climate change, their habitat is going to keep shrinking with human development. Their habitat is going to keep shrinking. Poaching, on the other hand, is hopefully easier to address. Um, That being said, there's a lot of systems in place that make people need to poach to get money to support their families. So when I say hopefully easier, it should be in theory, but it doesn't always work that way. The population could climb, but it's going to take a ton of work on the environmental side and the socioeconomic side to get people to stop poaching and to get their habitats to stop shrinking. So good story. Let's hope it continues to, you know, inspire more rhinos to have more babies. <laughs> exactly right, Maddie. Agreed. All right, let's move on to this next one, and it is titled Road to Ruin by Jacob Resnick, Eric Stone, Edward Boyd, and Clayton Aldern of Grist. Yeah, this is a longer article, but if you have time and you want to check it out, I would definitely, definitely recommend it If for nothing else other than checking out the photos and the graphics that they put in the article. So Nakati Bay is home to less than 150 people who are able to feed their families through hunting and fishing or foraging for berries and mushrooms in a town with no post office and almost no cell phone service aside from a small area a few miles away from town. So talk about living off the grid. (laughs) And it's on the upper half of Alaska's Prince of Wales Island. And it's also home to the largest intact temperate rainforest in the world at nearly 17 million acres across 1,100 mountainous islands. Nearly 2 million people visit the forest every year just to look at the vegetation, the wildlife, including bears, salmon, eagles, humpback whales. So look, if you're a wildlife lover, this place honestly just seems like one of those magical places that you have to go experience to, to believe it. Logging had been heavily involved in Tongass National Forest, which is the forest that we're talking about in this article, since 1950. In the late 1990s, regulations and increased environmentalism started to deal a blow to the timber industry there. In 2001, President Clinton issued the Roadless Area Conservation Policy, aka the Roadless Rule, and it restricted road building and impacted large-scale logging and mining on 58 million acres in the country's national forests. The rule's been pretty successful in protecting wild places in the U.S., except for the Tongass National Forest, because resource extraction is a big part of Alaska's economy and politics. For that reason, there's been years and years of litigation over the forest and how this whole thing applies to the Tongass. In 2015, 88,000 acres of the forest were transferred by Congress out of the Tongass to the Sealaska Corporation and Alaska Mental Health Trust. So they are no longer protected by the roadless rule. Around 43% of all forest loss in the Tongass region between 2015 and 2020 occurred in the land that Nick just mentioned. Before that, 
62% of forests lost between 2001 and 2014 was on state or private lands that had been transferred out of federal ownership. The Nakati community as a whole has been worried about the speed and the scale of the clear-cutting that's going on in the Tongass, and there were actually updates on the federal level for the Tongass as recently as last year. Yeah, so last year, the Biden administration rolled back attempts to exempt the Tongass from the roadless rule by the Trump administration. And the article says that some people on Prince of Wales Island would end large-scale logging. Yeah, unfortunately, since then, logging has actually accelerated with logging trucks and excavators clearing large swaths of trees regularly. So one of the people interviewed for the article says that many of the people living in Nakati are not anti-logging, but they think the scale of this is completely unsustainable. And the Tongass is part of their way of life, their food supply, and overall just their home. The authors add that the Tongass is considered the lungs of North America, so this has big implications for the continent and the world, too. The, the Tongass currently holds 44% of all of the carbon stored by U.S. national forests, so this wow. is big. Like this is a massive, massive amount of carbon sequestration going on in this area. And yeah, it's not something that we could just kind of overlook and say, oh, this is just another deforestation article. No, this is a huge deal. Another thing to add is that forest fires are relatively rare here. So that's part of the reason why the Tongass is already a steady carbon sink that, you know, they don't have to worry about burning and releasing that carbon back to the atmosphere as much. When the trees get cut down, that is when we have to worry about the carbon releasing back into the atmosphere. Yeah, and this whole article kind of just shows how loopholes can impact federal laws. By Alaska State Congress transferring national forest land to state or private ownership, the land isn't protected under the roadless rule. Another example in the article is how the Forest Service requires a 100-foot buffer around salmon-producing streams, but the Mental Health Trust, who we mentioned earlier, can leave buffers of 66 feet on land it is logged. Yeah, and it's important to note that part of the trust's bylaws is to maximize profits for land they own, and old-growth forests produce really expensive wood, so it maximizes profits for them, but at what cost? Something that makes things a little more complicated is that the logging industry in Forest Service lands is heavily favored by Alaskan politicians. And look, this is something that Nick and I can go on and on about. And the article does a really great job of highlighting more nuanced details of this story with photos, quotes, charts, all stuff to back it up. For the sake of time, we're not going to dive into this too much more. But yeah, Nick, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, this this article made me think about the documentary that we watched this Monday. And when we talk about 44% of all the carbon stored in US, U.S. national forests, that's a massive amount. Like, And when we talk about carbon sequestration and all that, yeah, that's playing a huge role. So those, those trees like need to stay alive. And that's not even accounting for all of the plants and other, you know, wildlife within the, within that forest that allows the, the carbon sequestration through soil. Yeah. And, and not even just the, the plants that are around it. It's a big thing for the animals that live there too. I mean, we talked, I think this was last month about how trees provide shade that keep water cooler. That way salmon can thrive mm. with less tree cover the water is going to get hotter and salmon are super sensitive to temperature changes. So something like this, where 
you know, it's not just the tree getting cut down, which is releasing carbon to the atmosphere and taking less carbon out of, you know, our emissions. It's also, like you said, the other vegetation around. Exactly. It's the animals that live there. It's the people who, you know, want to live in this beautiful forest and not have to worry about part of it getting cut down. So there's a lot of factors that go into it. And, you know, if forestry stories like this one interest you as a listener, we have a great interview coming up uh, actually 12 days from now. So not this upcoming Monday, but the Monday after uh, on April 18th. So buckle up and get ready for that one. Yeah, definitely. This next story is by Alice Dempster of ABC Southeast South Australia, who writes, Victor Harbor Council works hard to protect little penguins, but says it needs SA government help too. Yeah, so little penguins are the smallest of all penguin species, and a coastal South Australian council is asking the state government for help in protecting what's left of their population. 1,600 penguins used to live on Granite Island off the coast of Victor Harbor, and that number is now down to 20. The population decline has also been noted in other little penguin populations, such as those of Kangaroo Island, which is about 80 kilometers away. Victor Harbor's mayor, Moira Jenkins, said that action needs to be taken at a larger scale to protect the little penguin population. The 20 adult penguins are actually up from 16 last year, and there are eggs on the island, which is a promising sign. But either way, the population is still very low. What's interesting is that Mayor Jenkins said the management of the colony of little penguins is in the hands of the state government, and local support is there to protect the penguins, but they need help. And it makes sense the support is there. The island used to get 10,000 visitors every year just for penguin watching. So, of course, people want them back. And some are going to be motivated by tourism money. Some are going to be motivated by conservation. And some people just like penguins. But (laughs) in this case, all roads lead to protecting the little penguin population. Yeah, exactly. It's a win-win for everyone. It it gets money in the community and... It's also just good for conservation. And come on, they're little penguins. Yeah, I'm very curious. The first time I ever heard of little penguins, I didn't realize that was a species name. So this time around, I was an expert and I was like, oh, cool, we're talking about little penguins. But I wonder how many people read that headline and were just like, what, like they're just small penguins? <laughs> no, this, this species is actually called little penguin. And they are, in fact, very little. They are. They're really small. They're really cute. And getting back to what you were just saying, Matt, about protecting Protections including rat and fox bait and a fox gate to keep the predators away from the penguins have been on the island. Those predators, along with rising temperatures causing the fish the penguins eat to move further out to sea, have been a main source of the population decline. Yeah, and some good news here. A Department of the Environment spokesperson said a plan was being developed for little penguin protection. And animals like these aren't just important because of their own species. Loss of biodiversity impacts every level of the food chain and every part of the ecosystem. So, you know, we're talking about those predators that eat the penguins. We're also talking about the fish that Nick just mentioned. And without a predator to eat those fish, some of those populations are going to grow. And that can be a good thing, but it could also be a very bad thing when you talk about competition for the resources that are available. If the fish that those penguins eat their population skyrockets, it's going to have an impact on other fish that live nearby because there's only a limited amount of food. So yeah, biodiversity and food chains are worth protecting. It's important to protect these penguins because they're cute. It's important to protect them because it's important to protect any species as they also deserve to live without going extinct. 
but also it's just important to protect them because they are important to their environment and to our greater environment. Yeah. Well said, Maddie. All right. And after the break, we're going to have some more quick hits for you. Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the materials, historic craftsmanship, and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. And next up, UPS tries out Equad electric bikes for urban deliveries by Nick Carey of Reuters. Cool story out of London where UPS is trying out a new delivery vehicle that kind of looks like a mini mail truck by <laughs> trialing 100 of them. This is part of a greater UPS push to electric vehicles, but the thinking here is that in some urban areas, bikes have better and easier access routes for deliveries. Yeah, so UPS announced it would trial the equads in seven European markets, the US, and some Asian markets. Many package delivery companies are searching for ways to cut their carbon footprints while also cutting the cost of last mile deliveries. So last mile deliveries are basically those that end up at your door as opposed to going from warehouse to warehouse while en route to you. With e-commerce orders ever increasing, it makes sense why companies like UPS, FedEx, and AM star 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 N would <laughs> want to cut their costs. But it's important to note that one of the ways they're trying to do that is to electrify their fleets, which is also better for the environment. The Equads have an electric-assisted top speed of around 15.5 miles per hour, but don't worry, drivers can pedal to go faster. They can haul up to 440 pounds of packages, and the battery has a range of 40 miles. So this would be able to cover all urban routes pretty easily. Yeah, and it's also only 36 inches wide, so legally it can enter bike lanes and pedestrian zones that UPS vans and trucks can't. So normally drivers have to park, unload packages onto the carts, and then kind of just schlep them by foot to their customers. Yeah, this thing looks like, when I first saw it in the article, I was like, wow, this thing looks like a cross between like a smart car and a golf cart. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like the only way I could kind of describe it was like a mini mail truck. Like it's, <laughs> if you take it and then just kind of scale it down, that's what it looked like to me. Yeah, really, really squish it together. Yeah. Really squish it. It almost reminds me of um, the... Harry Potter, what's the, I don't even know what it's called, like the trolley. Kaylee, yeah. what's the trolley in Harry Potter called? The Hogwarts Express. The Hogwarts Express? Or are you talking about the red? I'm talking the, about like the bus. The red bus. The night bus. The night bus. Thank you. There we go. Thank you, Kaylee. Yeah, it looks like this, it, it's like the squished 
night bus. That's what it looks like. Yeah, that's that's a very good comparison. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of conflicted about this because you know it's good for emissions. It's definitely more convenient for drivers, but them driving in the bike lanes makes me a little nervous. Um, I I don't think e-bikes that are that wide are necessarily fair to bikers or pedestrians that are going to be running or, or biking on those bike paths. Um, but I don't know. I mean, then if you have them go on the street, like that's dangerous for the drivers, I guess. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the win is here. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough situation. I mean, I, I think you're right. Like, will they be able to match the flow of traffic in the bike lane? You know, I don't know. I don't know if they'll match the speed of like some bikers or, you know, whatever the case may be. I have a feeling it'll probably make bikers very pissed, but that's uh, at least they get their mail quicker. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, I, I hope it works. Um, I'm, I'm definitely a fan of this so long as the bike lanes are, you know, safe and accessible for the people who they're designed for. And, and that being said, it's not like you're going to have these zipping up and down the bike lane 24 <laughs> seven. It's going to be during your mail route. Like it's, yeah. it's one time that you're going to have to avoid it per day. So yeah, I think overall it's good. I hope that the drivers are acting responsibly and kind of, you know, being courteous and I'll, I'll leave it at that. Definitely. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Our last quick hit of the week is by Katie Surma who writes Ecuador's high court rules that wild animals have legal rights for inside climate news. Ecuador's top court ruled that animals must be protected against, quote, disproportionate cruelty, fear, and distress in a case related to a woolly monkey that was taken from the wild and raised as a pet for 18 years. The 7-2 to two ruling is believed to be the first time that a court has applied the rights of nature to an animal, in this case, a monkey named Estrelita. The rights of nature recognize the legal rights of ecosystems to exist and regenerate. And this is an extension of those rights. The monkey was taken from the wild at only one month old and kept as a pet for 18 years before authorities found out about it. It is illegal to possess a wild animal in Ecuador. So Estrelita was relocated to a zoo where she unfortunately died within a month of being there. Without getting into too much legal talk, the woman who kept Estrelita as a pet tried to sue and wanted to get her back. And, you know, this eventually worked its way up to Ecuador's court system before the high court basically said that Estrelita's rights had been violated when she was taken from the wild. The court said that officials also violated Estrelita's rights by not considering her particular circumstance. It added that the trauma from being separated from her home and the conditions of the zoo could have contributed to her death. Yeah, and it's interesting, right? Because like zoos mimic wild habitats. Estrelita was taken from the wild while she was only a month old, so she never knew a wild habitat. Mm-hmm. So the stress from being taken from your family and being thrown into the wild, essentially, can be a lot to handle. And the caveat here is that she should have never been in this situation to begin with. Yeah. So, I don't know, there, there is some nuance here, but Nick, what are your thoughts? You know, it, it's a tough one because, like you just said, she shouldn't have been here. She shouldn't have been in this situation. But I think ultimately they should have kept her, you know, in the possession of this, uh, the woman who, who took her originally. Because like you said, it's it's stressful. Like there's probably so many animals. It's not something that they're used to. It's not an environment that they're used to. It definitely was overwhelming. And, and she probably was like, dude, I'm done. Yeah, it's something that, you know, 
we we've both grown up with dogs our whole lives. Imagine sending one of our dogs just out into the wild after years and years of living yeah. in our living rooms and couches. Like they're not going to do well. <laughs> so no, absolutely not. Yeah. And, and that being said, you know, you're legally allowed to own dogs. This wasn't any law breaking by our families. So was this woman wrong in the first place? Yes. Do I think that the courts probably should have kind of grandfathered Estrelita in and considered her circumstance like people were saying? I would lean on the side of yes for this case and this case only. Yeah. The court said that the Ecuadorian government needs to develop new rules and procedures to make sure that the constitutional rights of wild animals are respected. And an important quote from the article that kind of sums up the court's ruling is, Wild animals, the court said, generally have the right not to be hunted, fished, captured, collected, extracted, kept, retained, trafficked, marketed, or exchanged, and the right to the free development of their animal behavior, which includes the guarantee of not being domesticated and not forced to assimilate human characteristics or appearances. So if you listen to that whole quote, you're probably like, wow, they really covered everything. (laughs) Uh, If you didn't listen to that whole quote, you probably just saved 15 seconds of your time. And I will tell you, they covered everything. (laughs) So the court stressed that animal rights come from their own individual value and not their value to humans. And I think that's really important because it means that animal populations can be protected when previously laws had been concerned with inhumane treatment of individual animals. Now it's saying that they're valuable on their own. Yeah. And the court didn't say whether pets had specific legal rights, but it is likely that they do. The court did say that animal husbandry and fishing are permissible in Ecuador. Yeah, so what they're talking about here with animal husbandry is breeding and caring for animals, and that can be used in either a zoological setting or a farm slash factory farm setting. So people can still eat meat. You know, they're not trying to say that it's homicide to eat a eat a burger or whatever, but what they are saying is wild animals in Ecuador have the right to not be messed with. Right. And I just want to touch on the rights of nature really quickly because the article points out that Ecuador, Bolivia, New Zealand, Colombia, and Bangladesh all recognize the rights of nature. And yeah, it's definitely a foreign concept in the U.S. and in many other countries around the world, but it's an idea that's picking up momentum globally and recognizing those rights could do a lot of good in the wildlife conservation world. Definitely. I mean, it's something that should be universal, to be honest with you, but you know, I guess every country has the right to treat animals the way that they, they want to, but that's kind of unfortunate because it obviously leads to a lot of animals being mistreated and, and not cared for. Yeah. And it's not really much to ask, right? They're not saying, you know, change your entire lifestyle. They're just saying, Hey, don't mess with wild animals. Keep wild, yeah, wild. Just have respect. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what it comes down to. It's respect. Yeah. So Yeah. All right, that'll do it for today's episode of TPT. Nick and I are going to be back on Monday for a shorter, fun feature story. Yeah, so we're actually going to be talking about dinosaurs and specifically a new discovery about the Spinosaurus. Please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can. The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norton. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. We're produced every week by Nick Janusa, who also does the music for our show. Nick, where can people keep up with you? You can keep up with me at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, y'all. And go check us out on all social medias at Planet Today Pod or shoot us an email at planettodaypod at gmail.com. 
Our logo is made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Peace.